So tonight, there's a lot of text that I could have used to think about this idea of money and how the gospel impacts it with you. But what we're going to do is look at the gospel of Luke, which is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and a couple of the phrases and sayings of Jesus, as well as an important story from the life of Jesus. I'm going to read Luke chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, and then Luke 19, 1 through 10. It's going to be projected on the wall. You can follow along there or you can follow in your own Bible. So this is God's word for us tonight. Please give it your attention and let's listen to it and see what God has for us. The Gospel of Luke, beginning in chapter 16, verse 13, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now go to chapter 19, just a couple of pages over in your Bibles, and I want to read verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and this is very important, he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Let's pray together and ask him to help us understand it rightly. Please join me. Our Father, we come again tonight asking that you would do work here, good work on our hearts and on our minds, giving us ears to hear what you have for us here. May these portions of the Bible not just go in one ear and out another, but will you use them through the Holy Spirit's power to work change and renewal in our lives. And Father, tonight perhaps we're here and we're worried and concerned about our own financial situation. Perhaps we're here and we're in a place financially that's better than where we've ever been. Perhaps we're here and we don't think that church and religion have much, if anything at all, to do with the way I think about my money. Father, no matter where we're coming from tonight on this particular issue, we ask that you would help us to understand what Jesus thinks of money and how he calls us to follow him in the way we think of money. And Lord, we ask that you would also grant to us a spirit of humility as we seek to repent of our sin and believe in Jesus as he freely offers himself to us in the gospel. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So again, this series is called Everyday Gospel, and the main point that we're looking at again and again is what does it look like for the gospel to impact our everyday issues? 
And last week, we talked about emotional health and the inner life. And tonight, we're going to talk about another issue that is, in many ways, fraught with peril. You know, um, the famous saying about sitting down with your extended family for Thanksgiving dinner or for any meal, for that matter, is have a great time, but whatever happens, don't talk about politics or religion, right? Well, oftentimes, there's sort of an unspoken rule in many churches that churches should not talk about Money. Uh, That is not something that many churches are comfortable talking about. And many people in churches are comfortable hearing about. And frankly, largely that's understandable. And part of that is the church's own fault and the way that they have talked about money and thought about money with their congregants. But if we want to really follow the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, if we really want to understand what he has for us in his life and in his teachings that we see in the Gospels, then we've got to talk about money. I hate to break it to you, but Jesus talks about money more than almost any other everyday issue. He talks about money more than he talks about sexuality, more than he talks about marriage, more than he talks about heaven and hell, more than he talks about almost anything else. For Jesus, this issue of how we think about and how we use our finances was a really, really big deal. Now, why is that? Why would Jesus spend so much of his earthly life talking in parables, in explicit overt teachings, and in other ways about money? If you read through Luke, in almost every single chapter of this gospel, he has something to say about that topic. And I believe that the reason that Jesus talks about it so much is because Jesus, of any person who's ever lived, knows the human heart the best. And because Jesus knows the human heart better than any human who's ever walked this earth, he knows that money is one of the most powerful and addictive drugs that captivates each and every one of our hearts from time to time. Jesus knew that money can easily become what the Bible calls an idol. An idol is a good thing that we make to be an ultimate thing, and that is a really bad thing. And we do that all the time with this idea, with the concept of money. And Jesus knew that, and so he talks to us all the time about the idea of, if you're really going to be my disciple, if you're really going to be changed and impacted by the gospel, if you're really going to love other people, then you have to seriously consider the way you're thinking about and the way you're using your money. And uh, really, we can think this, this evening in three ways about these pet texts that I read for us. There's so many things we can say in the New Testament about money, but tonight as we look at these texts, I want to just give you three points. First, no one can love both God and money, or no one can serve God and money. Second, we all serve money. And third... Only the gospel can help us serve God instead of money. Okay, first, no one can serve God and money. That's what Jesus is getting at there in chapter 16 in those first verses I read for you. This is at the end of one of his parables, the parable of the dishonest manager. And we don't have time to get deeply into that parable, but what I read there in verse 13 is sort of his punchline. 
It's the end of the parable. And he puts it very forcefully and very bluntly there. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he's going to love the one and hate the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he makes it explicit. No one can serve both God and money. In other words, Jesus is saying in somewhat provocative fashion here that there is a constant war, a constant competition for our heart's deepest affection. And whoever is winning that war is the God of your life, whether you know it or not. Whoever is winning the war for your heart's greatest affection is really what you worship at the end of the day. And the center of our heart's affection, according to the Christian scriptures, should be God. He made us and he loves us. As the great theologian St. Augustine said, God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Our affection, our longing, our desires should center on the person of God. But so often we try to make other things or other people or other ideas the gods of our lives and functionally those things or people or ideas become what we worship. In fact, that is the very essence of sin, according to the scriptures. Really, all sin, in some form or another, is just breaking the first commandment, where Jesus, or where God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what we constantly try to do in our rebellion as humans is try to make anything but God, God. And Jesus says here that perhaps the best litmus test... The best means of self-examination to discern what your heart tonight is really set on is to think about this idea of money, is how you handle your money. And to be more specific, Jesus explicitly says in many places that to be generous and sacrificial with money and to be willing to part with it is the standard given for knowing if you are putting God's will first or really if you're putting your will First, it's a, it's a chief identifier of who your real God is. And listen, Jesus makes it clear here, doesn't he? It can't be both. The throne room of your heart has a maximum occupancy of one. You cannot have two gods. You cannot serve two kings. You cannot follow two ways. And so often we will say with our lips one thing, but the way we function in our everyday is something very different. And I want you to remember also as we think about this idea that no one can serve both God and money, that money in itself isn't bad or evil. I mean, what does the Apostle Paul say? The what of money? Love. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's not money itself. You know, Dave Ramsey is a very famous financial counselor, and he says all the time, and he's right, that money is neutral. It's something that is going to follow the direction that your heart is already going in. It's not money itself that's evil. It's when we seek to make money our security, our satisfaction, our mini-God, that it becomes a big, big problem in our lives. That's what idolatry is. And you know, I think really idolatry is best illustrated, I'm sure this will shock you, uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, The ring itself, which is sort of the standard image in this story, The Lord of the Rings, is in many ways a picture 
of what it means to worship false gods. You see, the ring, as Alan Jacobs is a philosopher, and he's also a Tolkien, a scholar of Tolkien. Yes, there are scholars of Tolkien. I might have missed my calling. I would love to do that. But he calls the ring a, a psychic amplifier. And what he means by that is that whatever you want or desire or long for, when you possess the ring in Tolkien's story, you want and desire and long for those things so desperately that you will run over anyone and do anything to attain your goal. And so even good people in this story, like Gandalf the wizard, is scared to death of putting the ring on his finger because he knows he has good intentions. He wants to free people. He wants injustice to be done away with. But if he were to wear that ring, these good intentions, these good desires would for him become ultimate. The ring is amplifying his desires to such a degree that he becomes obsessed and enslaved with the pursuit of satisfying those desires. That's exactly what Tolkien is, is trying to illustrate throughout the whole story of the Lord of the Rings. And, and really, that is, that's what sin does to us. Sin causes us to, to take good things, to take, take things that aren't in themselves evil, like money, and use those things as gods, and seek those things to meet all of the needs that only the true living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can meet. And so Jesus here warns us against that by saying that no one can serve both God and money. But our problem is that we all serve money. And that's the second thing I want to show you. Jesus is responded to in chapter 16 by the Pharisees. Uh, they ridiculed him, Luke tells us. And then they, the Luke goes on to say that they were lovers of money. And then he tells another story in chapter 19, the story of Zacchaeus. If you've been around the scriptures or the church for a while, I'm sure you've heard about the wee little man, right, Zacchaeus. And this is an amazing story to illustrate the power of money, the seductive grasp of money in our hearts. So look with me there, Luke 19, and I want to show you here that we really all serve money in and of ourselves. We see that Jesus enters Jericho and he was passing through and there's a man there named Zacchaeus. And Luke tells us two important things about Zacchaeus. You see him there in verse 2? First, he was a tax collector. And second, he was what? Rich. He was very, very rich, in fact. Now, this idea of a tax collector is something I want you to understand because if you don't get that, you're not really going to get the force of the text. Now, even today, people that work for the IRS aren't out, you know, throwing their business cards around to everybody, right? <laughs> it's not exactly something that you're going to publicize because people aren't in love with the idea of the IRS. But in Jesus' day, 2,000 years ago, in Roman-occupied Palestine, to be a tax collector was much, much more reprehensible and disgusting to the everyday person than it is for us today. And the reason for that is this. Palestine, or ancient Israel, when Jesus walked this earth, was under the occupation of a foreign enemy, the Romans. The Roman army was there. The Romans ruled over these people. And they did that really all over the ancient world. And the way the Romans um, earned income, got income for their, for their government, for their empire to continue to run, was by levying heavy taxes on the outlying provinces. Places like Palestine, where Jesus lives, and where the events of the Bible unfold. 
And they would level like these ridiculous, exorbitant taxes, and all of the money from the outlying provinces were going into the main Roman infrastructure in Rome itself, so that the the senators and the emperor and the true-blooded Romans are the ones that are living fat and happy and luxuriously at the expense of all of the poor people throughout the rest of the empire that are paying this ridiculous tax burden. And the way that the Romans made sure the taxes were paid was by, was by getting certain local people to extort and through force of arms make sure everyone was paying their taxes. And those people are called tax collectors. And so they are seen by the normal average Jewish person in Jesus' day as someone who has become a traitor to his family and to his people and to his city and to his friends. But they were especially hated because not only did tax collectors like Zacchaeus just sort of take the 50% that the Romans told them to take, but they would take like an extra 20% on top of that and line their own pockets with the wink, wink, okay from the Roman authorities. And so not only were they representative of all that was wrong about the Romans ruling in Israel, but they were actually extortionists and crooks as well. And the text here tells us that Zacchaeus wasn't just your everyday tax collector. It says that he was a, literally, an arch tax collector, a chief tax collector. He is at the top of the tax collecting pyramid scheme. He is, he is the Bernie Madoff of the ancient world. That's how people thought about tax collectors. Only if Bernie Madoff like, also had like Al-Qaeda sympathies. You know, he was really, really despised. No one could stand to be in the presence of a man like Zacchaeus. Why would anyone want to spend their life being hated by everyone around them? Because of what you do. Why would anyone want to become a tax collector and betray your family and your nation and your friends? There's only one reason. And it's the second thing that Luke tells us about Zacchaeus. The only reason is for money. The only reason is that it made Zacchaeus extremely, lavishly wealthy. And Luke introduces us to this man in this part of his gospel, not so you can look at him as you read the story and think to yourself, man, that is a really bad dude. No. Like every other part of the scriptures, the story of Zacchaeus, as you read it and as I read it, is a mirror of your own heart. Because... The Bible tells you, and the Bible tells me that deep down, apart from the love of Jesus, you will serve the money God just as much as Zacchaeus did. You may not overtly look like it, and you may not go to the lengths that he did, but deep down, your heart is just as dark and just as broken as the heart of Zacchaeus. You see, just like Zacchaeus, each one of us, in and of ourselves, will bow before mammon before we will ever turn and follow the true God. You think I'm exaggerating? Let's do a little bit of self-examination right now. How can you know in your own life if you are tempted to love money and worship it? Well, the number one reason, the number one way you can know is if you don't ever give any of it away. 
And in particular, if you don't ever give any of it away in a way that causes you to sacrifice. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a famous 19th century Welsh preacher. And he tells a great story about a farmer in the Welsh countryside who um, was out farming and he had a pregnant cow and he was expecting this cow to give birth soon and he was going to raise this little calf to be healthy, feed it well, and then sell it for a hefty profit. And when the cow, the time came for the cow to give birth, the cow actually gave birth to twins. And so the farmer is exceedingly excited because it seems that his profits were going to double. And so he comes home from work that day and he walks into his house and he looks at his wife in the kitchen and he says, honey, the cows have twins. We have twins, baby. And uh, you know what? I'm feeling really magnanimous. I'm feeling really generous. I'm so thankful to God for giving us this amazing blessing that I'm going to give all of the proceeds from that second cow to the local little country British church down the road. And we'll keep the rest for ourselves and do well. 50% I'm going to give away. And so they start raising the cows. He does whatever farmers do and the cows are growing. And then one day, a couple of months later, farmer, farmer Joe walks back into his house and looks at his wife and he, he has a little bit of a grim look on his face and he says, honey, I hate to tell you this, but God's cow died today. And his wife looks at him and he says, I don't remember us distinguishing one or the other. And he says, oh yeah, yeah, little baby Mildred cow. Mildred, she was God's. I said that from the very beginning. You didn't hear me say that? Yeah, this was God's cow. The one that died is God's cow. So it's, it's just not going to get, the church isn't going to get that money. It, it's really too bad that little baby Mildred had to die. And, and Lloyd-Jones's point is that it's always God's cow that dies. It's always God who gets sacrificed on the altar of money's God and not what you want or need. It's always when I make a little bit more money, then I'll begin to give to those who have need. It's always when I get out of debt, I'll finally start giving some money away. It's always when we finish paying off our last vacation, I'll begin giving money away. It's always, I'm not really going to sacrifice anything that I need or want, and I'm going to sacrifice giving it away to someone who really does need it. When that's going on in your life, when that's going on in my life, it's an absolutely certain sign that your functional God so often is not the God of the Bible. It's mammon, the money God. Think about Luke chapter 21. Jesus talks about this just a couple of chapters later. He sees the poor widow come in and put in her two pennies in the offering plate. And Jesus says to all the religious leaders, to all the conservative establishment, to the tithers, this lady gave more than any of you because she gave out of her poverty, but you gave out of your abundance. In other words, she was willing to hurt in order for someone else to be helped, and you're not. And she, therefore, shows that she really wants to follow the true God while you are continually showing that all you want to do is follow the God of money. The first sign that you, from time to time, are not following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the God of the of God of money is that you don't give your money away, especially when it's going to cause you to sacrifice something that you really want. The second sign, and there are many, but a second sign that you from time to time serve God or serve money and not God is when you worry about money. 
you know, we tend to think that it's only really rich people, like the Wall Street tycoons, that are greedy. We tend to think that, you know, the Gordon Gecko person from Wall Street is the person who's getting filthy rich at the expense of other people, and, and he's the problem, but I'm doing okay. But, but the gospel tells us again and again through these stories that when money is something that causes you deep stress and anxiety, when you worry about not having enough, when you worry about making sure all your needs are going to be met, that is very often a sign that money has become something that you look to for security rather than God. A third sign that you serve money instead of God is you spend more than you make. Man, that's hard for Americans to hear. It's an American epidemic without question. And it's not always the case, but very regularly, it's flat out bad stewardship and disobedience. Why is it a sign that you're serving money ahead of God when you spend more than you make? Well, just like worry shows that your real security is you're looking for that in money instead of God, spending more than you make shows that you're really trying to find true happiness and peace and rest and contentment in money instead of God. It shows that your functional God is not the real God at all. It's an idol. And the last way, and there are many more, I'm sure, that you might be able to detect in your own heart if you're serving money instead of God is if you work in a job that you utterly despise only because it pays you well. Now, that's not always true. And this is a very complex issue, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Sometimes you have to work in a job you hate just to put food on the table, and that's a very biblical, noble, and good thing. But oftentimes, and I think more and more in American culture, our sole prerequisite for taking a job is not whether we're called to this job, is not whether it fits our gifts or our talents, is not whether it's going to enable us to serve others, but whether it's going to pay us enough to have all of our scratches itched. Is whether it's going to pay us enough to help us pay the bills and also buy some really nice things on the side. That, that's another sign that oftentimes your functional God isn't the God of the Bible at all. It's not following Jesus. It's money. All of us, all of us serve money instead of God. That is an unconditional problem of the human heart apart from Jesus. Zacchaeus is a reflection and a mirror of the problem of your own heart. But Zacchaeus' story doesn't end in verse 2, thankfully. And so thirdly, I want to show you that the gospel, and only the gospel, will change you in this area. Only the gospel will help you serve God instead of money. Look what happens. Zacchaeus was seeking, verse 3, to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was small of stature. So he goes and he climbs up this sycamore tree. Okay, time out. First sign that something interesting is happening in this story is that a man like Zacchaeus, the arch tax collector, is doing something that most kids do and not really, really rich tax collectors. He's climbing up a tree. That's a sign that perhaps he's coming to a point where he faces some desperation in his heart where he's willing to accept that perhaps his path has not been the best path. So he climbs up into this tree to see Jesus as he's crowded and surrounded by all the religious leaders and all the people who followed him. And Jesus looks up and sees Zacchaeus and immediately says, verse 5, Zacchaeus, come down because I am staying at your house today. I'm coming over. Jesus 
Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' story. He invites himself into Zacchaeus' life. And at that moment, we see change in Zacchaeus. Grace in the person of Jesus enters the picture in verse 5. And I want you to see here that it's not Zacchaeus who invites Jesus into his house. And it's not Zacchaeus who invites Jesus into his heart. Jesus invites himself into Zacchaeus' heart just as much as he invites himself into Zacchaeus' house. And when he enters in, we read a very important thing in verse 6. Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him. And then look at that adverb, joyfully. He received him joyfully. The religious folks didn't get it. They said in verse 7 that they, they grumbled. They say, this guy's gone in to be with the sinner. What is he doing hanging out with that with Zacchaeus? Don't we? He's an extortionist. That guy bribes all of us. That guy's not a true Jew. He's in bed with the Romans. Zacchaeus, Jesus, what are you doing? You see, Jesus is turning the way people view spiritual life upside down. And none of the religious folks get it, but Zacchaeus gets it. Zacchaeus in that moment, listen, begins to understand that God does not relate to you based on your performance. God relates to you based on grace. God does not relate to you based on how well you're doing or how bad you're doing. God always and only in Jesus relates to you based on his love for sinners. That's why he says that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. This man, this man is wicked. This man is despised. This man is rejected by all of his friends and family. This guy's a swindler. He's an extortionist. He's greedy. He's unjust. He's unmerciful. He's selfish. He's ruthless. He's given away all other people that he loves to serve money. He sacrificed his family and his friends on the altar of the God of Mammon. And Jesus comes to him and says, I'm coming to your house because I love sinners. When Zacchaeus begins to get that, he changes. When Zacchaeus begins to understand the gospel, you see, he sees his heart open up in ways that he had never before seen it. Do you understand that that's the gospel? Do you understand that the true God looks at you And sees that you have in many ways turned from him in rebellion, even though he made you and created you and loves you. And instead of condemning and judging you, the true God sent his only son to live for you and to do what you could have never done and then to die for you and to pay the penalty that you deserve for sin. And because God has done that for you in Jesus, he is is fully committed to pursuing you with his love and mercy. All you have to do to experience life together with God, to experience forgiveness and renewal, to experience hope and change is not to decide you're going to get your spiritual act together. No, it's to trust that Jesus is who he says he is and did what he came to do. It's exactly what Zacchaeus does. And when Zacchaeus begins to really get the gospel and understand grace, he changes, and particularly he changes in regard to the way he uses money. Look, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, 
I'm going to give 10% because all the other Jewish folks tithe. So where do I go? How much do you want me to give? Is that what he says? No. He's not asking how much do I have to give. He's saying how much can I give? And he gives away half. (laughs) Half of his goods to the poor. And then he says if I've defrauded anyone or anything. And he has, man. This guy's a PhD defrauder. This guy is a master defrauder. He says, if I've done any of that, I restore it fourfold. I'm not an accountant, but that's a lot of interest. And he says this, and then Jesus responds, today salvation has come to this house. And he's not saying, Jesus, I'm going to save you, or Zacchaeus, I'm going to save you because you've decided to finally be good with money. No, he is salvation. Jesus came to the house. And as a response to Zacchaeus receiving Jesus and understanding grace, Zacchaeus' heart Zacchaeus's fingers that have always been clenched around his money are finally loosened and he becomes a generous man. When Zacchaeus finally begins to understand that his security rests in God alone and not in money, he can let it go. When Zacchaeus finally begins to understand that money will never bring him peace or contentment or happiness, he can let it go. When Zacchaeus finally understands that true hope that true life is found through the love of Jesus and not through the love of money. He can begin to let it go. You see, the gospel tells us, like the Apostle Paul does in 2 Corinthians 8, that Jesus gave 100%. Jesus, who was rich, became poor. He gave up all of the privileges of godness so that you who are completely penniless could become unbelievably wealthy in Christ. Jesus has given everything for you. And only believing that will enable you to not out of duty, to not do it because your pastor told you you need to give, to not do it because that's what your mom and dad did, but to do it out of gratitude, to give to be generous, to stop serving money and use your money to serve others. The gospel changes everything. Only the gospel will topple the money God and the idol that he has set up inside each of our hearts. But the gospel does indeed do it because it's more powerful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the gospel. And Lord, we confess tonight that... um, We follow uh, the money God, no matter what our income is, no matter what our tax statement says. So often in our lives, God, we obsess over money. We worry over money. We want more and more money. We believe that money is going to make us happy. We run over people and relationships in order to get more. We live a life that we really can't stand just because our paycheck at the end of each month is really, really nice. Father, this is the way of death. This is the way of slavery. And we ask that you would lead us in the way of peace and in the way of righteousness. Free us from the love of money. Help us in our everyday to be so captivated by the love that you have for us that we are people who express our generosity to an abundant measure. Oh God, we need your grace if that's ever going to happen in our hearts. So send it now, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.